Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. My co-host Joe Stewart and I would like to honor the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga that originate in India. We also wish to honor the traditional custodians of the unceded land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We feel honored and privileged to live on this land and we pay our respects to all of the people who have lived here past and present. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. The weather's getting warmer, the sun is shining here in Melbourne and they've stopped the curfew, which is great. I don't really go out that much, but for some reason it feels good to just have some small freedoms back. Now, we're really excited about our guest this episode. It's Daisy Catterall. Daisy is a queer Māori woman living on Gadigal land in Sydney. She's a yoga teacher who's created a wonderfully inclusive community in these challenging pandemic times with her offering Feel Free Yoga. She also has a welcoming and colourful Instagram, so look out for Daisy Bossy Baddie there. I'll leave a link in the show notes on our website, podcast.flowartist.com. The importance of creating community is just one of the things we cover in this episode. Starting with Daisy's background, growing up in a small town and the isolation she felt there. We learn how she resonated with the teachings of yoga and how she was inspired to bring together her intersectional yoga community with a pay-as-you-feel model. Now, before we get into our conversation with Daisy, I just wanted to mention our three-year anniversary episode. Exciting stuff. We've got past friends and guests of the podcast asking us the questions for this episode, and these people include Jivana Heyman, Jaisal Parikh, Amy Wheeler, and many more. So look out for that episode before the end of the month. All right, that's more than enough for me. Let's get into our conversation with Daisy Catterall. All right, Daisy, so good to finally get the chance to speak with you today. Thanks for catching up with us. I guess we could just start with you just telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. I kind of grew up in a couple of places just up and down the east coast of Australia. I was born in Canberra but then had really gnarly asthma as a baby so then we had to move to the Gold Coast for the weather, for like the humidity. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so then I grew up on the Gold Coast for kind of my childhood and then when I was a teenager we relocated back down to this small town near Canberra called Yass. And I was there for five years. I turned 18. I got out of there and I moved to Melbourne. And then I lived in Melbourne for nine years. And just a couple of years ago, I've moved to Sydney, rechasing the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so this is probably something you hear way too much. But like living in Yas, where you were like, Yas Queen. <laughs> I have to tell you, I was absolutely not like Yas Queen. I was like, oh my God, where am I? I am living on the Gold Coast where there is beaches and thousands of people and here I am in Yass, this tiny town where everyone's staring at me. Oh, my God. (laughs) And so was yoga part of your, like, health journey or is that something you discovered independently? Yeah, it was independent. I did my first ever yoga class when I was, like, 13 and it wasn't really for health. It was just for fun. My friend and I found a class that was happening in like a community hall with like mainly women over 70 doing yoga on their towels and I was like this will be funny and then we got in there and it was hilarious (laughs) for that particular class (laughs) and then yeah from then I kind of dabbled in and out mainly practicing yoga in gyms and stuff just kind of trying my luck with teachers and then as I learned more about pranayama and meditation and the philosophy side of yoga I guess my love for that all kind of melded into one and I I noticed that as my anxiety got worse as I grew up yoga helped me more and the physical side of it as well never have really been like a sporty kind of gal but moving my body in asana made me feel like normal back to normal yeah it's so good if you're not a 
I, like, I wasn't a coordinated sporty kid either. And like at my school, there was only competitive sport or stuff like running or like dance that it was just too complicated and too hard. So there, I didn't discover yoga till I was like 18 and there weren't that many other opportunities just to like move your body and feel good and then kind of cultivate that self-acceptance that comes with that practice as well. Mm, totally. And so when did you decide that you wanted to become a teacher? I mean, I always like when I'd have a good teacher at a studio, I'd be like, oh, that was really inspiring. I wonder if I could share this with others as well. And so I kind of like flirted with the idea in, I guess, my early 20s when I was practicing heaps. But I guess like when I think back to it, I remember when I was maybe 23-ish and I was doing yoga in my gym and one time I had this teacher who was this amazing vivacious woman in like her 50s or 60s and you'd come in to do the class and she was just practicing headstands there by herself as all the students walked in throughout the class she like her cues and her language was so empowering to me like one of the cues that she said was she was like and in this can you engage your core but make sure that your booty is plump and strong we're aiming for plump and strong and I was like, hell yeah, we're aiming for plump and strong. I've never <laughs> heard that. And then I, I think then I was like, I think when I'm older, I want to be a yoga teacher. I want to be like a woman like her when I'm 50. But then as as I practice more and as I use yoga for well-being and like survival at some points, I was like, hey, maybe I got to do this sooner rather than later. Why do I have to be a fabulous 50-year-old when I could be a fabulous 29-year-old? <laughs> And you've kind of touched on a few times, like yoga's really helped you deal with some mental health stuff. Was that also part of your motivation to just feel like, oh, this practice has helped me so much, like maybe I can help other people with this? Yeah, absolutely. And the closer I got to seeing or analysing the way that yoga is perceived, like on social media, but also just kind of generally in the contemporary sense, the closer to the realness I got, the more passionate I felt about wanting to share the realness with others, like having lots of friends who felt really intimidated about yoga because you're supposed to already be calm when you get there to be able to practice it or already be flexible, blah, blah, blah. Um, when I kind of realized that that yoga is the practice of working towards that and starting from where you are, I was like, I need to tell people about this because we're just getting inundated with messages that say the exact opposite. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess as well, it's something that you really highlight in your teaching that this is a practice for all people and all bodies and all genders. Did you have experiences where not just in the media, but when you walked into a yoga studio, like you felt unwelcome for any reason? Like did that toxic experience? kind of superficial yoga culture creep in a little bit or did you just have kind of good experiences in real life and maybe some different perceptions that you saw online? I'm really lucky when I was doing my yoga classes in gyms I never really felt like the negative yucky sides all the classes were pretty down to earth but since I had started to practice in studios a few years ago I definitely kind of came to a few of the sexy studios that have got a really amazing social media and they've got all nice outfits and stuff and I, I really sensed this competitiveness or this kind of like turbo energy going into the class and yeah then I kind of realized I'm not here for the same reason that these other people are here and and I think like the gaslighting nature of of what that can feel like is you can feel like it's your fault or that oh no I didn't I didn't get the brief and I didn't wear my cute tight clothes here I'm just here to you know get some respite or whatever it is yeah so I don't I think at the time maybe I might have felt like it was my insecurity that made me feel unwelcome but now as I analyze the structures more I understand that it's not me that these it's our responsibility as yoga teachers to make people feel welcome and celebrate the diversity of people's bodies and needs and abilities and all the rest. 
I've got to say that's been my experience in gym classes as well. Like sometimes gym yoga gets a bad rap for just being about the physical, but what I've kind of noticed more as a teacher is how diverse gym classes actually are in terms of different ages and different backgrounds and I don't know, it seems like there's a little bit less pretension there as well sometimes while people are still quite open to meditation and even philosophy and some of the things that you don't associate with so-called gym yoga. Yeah, right. And like what's the thing that's missing there compared to yoga studios? Like mainly it's social media, isn't it, I guess, the imagery. I think there's a bit of a cost difference as well. Like I think you can sign up for a gym sometimes for what you might pay for one class in a studio in a week. Totally. That was my incentive in gyms for sure. And so you are like a quite overt in your social media and on your website about how everyone is super welcome in your classes. And I might just read a little bit out from your website because I feel like you've summed it up really well. Queer and trans people and people of colour have specific experiences of the world because of the oppression they may face related to their identities or the way they look. Practicing yoga in a room filled with people who can understand these experiences firsthand is magical. While practicing yoga is often an individual experience, it's super powerful to feel safe to practice collectively with community. And would you like to just expand on that a little bit more about how powerful it can be to practice within a supportive community? Mm. Yeah, it was really hard putting that blurb together when I was making my website because I was like, yes, why? queer and trans classes like why do we need this it's really difficult to sum up an entire experience (laughs) oh you did such a great job (laughs) thanks yeah but I was thinking about I guess in that writing I was trying to explore this idea that you don't really know what you want if it's not there to want and you can try to go to, to gym classes or other yoga studios or whatever it is like teachers that seem welcome and stuff but if everybody else in the class can't relate to you or or isn't used to being in movement spaces with someone who has a body like yours then it can feel like something's missing and again with like this gaslighting culture of feeling like it's your fault often you can well in my experience you can just feel like oh, that's, that's just stuff that I've got to work on because I've got to feel like I can be comfortable around all different kinds of people. But then when you have a class that is filled with people who you know can relate to you and your experience and you don't feel weird in your body around, that is when you know like, oh, that is what I want. It's not just this task that you have to try to make do. It's, it's dreaming for an actual a vision that you do want. I'm I'm really lately in the last months, especially like since the uprising and Black Lives Matter movement, I've been super inspired by Adrienne Marie Brown. And she's a writer, activist, facilitator, organizer, extraordinary woman. And she writes speculative fiction and she talks about how organizing and movement isn't so much a practice of fighting against what you don't want, but it's a practice of imagining what you do want. When I kind of heard that, I was like, oh, exactly. Like why why are people whose identities are marginalised reduced to their life being a fight or resistance when we could be dreaming of something that would feel incredible? Like why not spend this energy imagining something that might feel impossible now but it's definitely going to be impossible if no one ever imagined it? I can really feel how that resonates as well with how you share your yoga practice. Like just an example of like, say you've gone in there and you're not loving your body that day. You're feeling like back pain or just like not feeling good about yourself. And if you're just like, right, I've got to address this in the class. I've got to like use this practice to fix all these things about myself instead of being like, oh, what, like, what do I love about myself today? Or like, what actually feels good when I move? And can I like go in that direction rather than being really fixated on all of the stuff that's wrong? Yes, right. Exactly. And I feel like as well when you were explaining the culture in the class, like I'm a cisgendered white woman, so this is not necessarily something I have to grapple with walking into a yoga class. But if you haven't been to a studio before, I could imagine there'd just be this, 
maybe anxiety or uncertainty of just not knowing how you are going to be received and welcomed when you go in there. But then when you know that it's like, oh, this is a space for me, like everyone here is going to be like welcoming and inclusive. It's just one less barrier to getting to that class, especially if you're feeling a bit vulnerable or a bit fragile that day. You don't have to overcome this sense of what could be framed as lack of self-confidence but could actually also be the reality of not feeling welcome in certain spaces and that being a lived experience. Right, exactly. And and I think like advertising classes that are meant for specific people, it kind of puts the onus on the teacher in some way or the responsibility on the teacher to hold space for these people. So there is some level of accountability that it brings with it which I hope makes students feel more comfortable to be able to come knowing that I take this responsibility really seriously to make their body feel welcome. Yeah, like this is really important to you as a teacher. Yeah, definitely. And so I imagine this is something that started out in your in-person classes. How's it translated to online? Yeah, surprisingly, it's translated quite well from what I hear from my students and from my experience too. Since COVID hit, I've been talking to some people who used to do face-to-face things, various things, and now have to have have had to have brought their facilitation online and kind of hearing all of the clunkiness and the unsmooth transition online. But I've actually found it really lovely, and if anything, the internet is able to bring it to get, bring us together, as evil as it can be. But the upsides are that the internet can totally connect people like there's some people especially in my queer class who don't know any queer people in their town there's definitely not a queer yoga studio in their town maybe I'm the first queer yoga teacher that they've ever practiced with and they live rurally so then suddenly they're practicing at the same time as 40 other queer people and that wouldn't have been able to happen face to face so yeah I'm feeling really appreciative for the ways that this has connected us in possibly more meaningful ways, though totally acknowledge that the, the face-to-face connection is unrepeatable, like it's you just can't, can't beat it in that sense and I look forward to going back to in-person someday. But I really, yeah, I feel the value of taking this, these things online, especially for people who have never done a yoga class before because they were too nervous to be in a room, understandably, but then they have come to do a yoga class of mine with their camera off the first few times because they're super nervous and don't want to fear being judged. And then all of a sudden they're coming every week and practicing with their camera on and chatting to people. Like it's quite, yeah, amazing openness and transformation. There's decisions that you make as the host as well with online yoga. Like I noticed that you just request that everyone has their microphone off at the start of the class and you leave it open to people whether they can have their camera on or off, but you invite people to like use the chat function to say hi to each other and say hi to you. Did you evolve that over time or and felt like this is what works the best or is that just what you tried to begin with and you're like, yep, this feels like it's working. No, not much has changed since the first class that I did in March, actually. I I knew that I was going to encourage people to practice with their cameras on kind of to feel so that they could feel this community vibe that there are other people practicing the same practices then, but also it helps me to teach, to see how people are going with the sequence and all that kind of thing. The microphone off thing was kind of just more of a logistical tool because when other people's microphones are on you can feel the echo in and out of the sound so that would have been yeah just less clear and the chat function I feel like lots of the people who I teach are young-ish in their 20s and so I definitely feel like me and my peers have kind of grown up on the internet and are super natural at using chat And I feel like that's kind of the most like collaborative way that people can communicate in the setting of our yoga classes rather than one person taking a turn on the microphone kind of thing. And it also kind of enables me to facilitate, I guess, more. And so when you're teaching, do you like have everyone on gallery view and you're looking at what people are doing or are you more just like, I'm going to lead this and give options? 
and let people find their own way. I have people on gallery view. Usually my I'm able to see my screen as well so that I can see how it's looking for people. But generally I'll have my screen on gallery view so that you can see whether people are taking the different options that I offer or if I'm going too fast or too slow. And most, I'd say maybe like 75% of my students practice with their cameras on. So it helps. Yeah, I find that as well. Sometimes like I teach one class a week, which is like a Facebook live stream. So I don't see anyone. And then all of my other ones, I've got everyone with their cameras on. And just energetically, it feels so much more natural to teach people when you can actually see them, when you're just kind of sending words out into the void and hoping that they land with people. Sometimes it's like, I don't know, it's just you don't get anything back. So it's all your energy going out and it can be kind of exhausting, although keeping track of 20 different screens on Zoom can also be quite exhausting. Do you, like, is that something you've had to manage in your teaching, like your own energy levels? And do you have any, like, self-care practices around that? Yeah, I've definitely noticed since teaching online, I am demonstrating pretty much the entire class. I'm a bit naughty. I know that lots of other teachers do a really great job at only demonstrating maybe transitions or something that would help have a a little more than words. But I find that I've, I feel like I've kind of babied my students in a way because I, I, since March have been doing these classes where Lots of people are beginners and have never, ever done yoga before. So it's not helpful if I say take warrior two, no idea what that means. And so I want to really set up this scenario for people who feel really clueless and who might be oral learners. So need to hear lots of instructions. So I try to do that with my words, but then also others might be visual learners. So I also want to show them what these shapes could look like in their bodies as well. So now that I'm teaching four classes a week, I'm feeling this this demonstration for four hours a week. And I've kind of recently, I guess, throughout the winter it was pretty tough, but kind of recently I've made a promise to myself that after each practice I take, I have to have like a really juicy, whatever juicy means for me that day, kind of warm down practice. Because when you're demonstrating and trying to teach, you can't possibly tell people all the cues and instructions and stuff and also breathe as deeply as will support you. But I've realized that, yeah, in my body, I mean, teaching and demonstrating has only driven home the lesson of the breath and how it can support you in moving as well as having space held for me. That was even when I was teaching face-to-face, I I noticed that even teaching two classes a week, I craved having space held for me in the same way that I was holding space for others. And I really felt when I didn't seek that out every week. So especially with COVID, there's been so many awesome things online. I I really have to be affirmative about seeking out places where I can have space held for me, whether that's in a movement practice or meditation or something that's totally unrelated to yoga. I really feel the effects of of having something like that reciprocated in the same energetic way yeah definitely it's really sometimes it can be tricky as well because say you had your in-person practice I know for me there's like regular classes that I go to on particular days during the week and that would be like the rhythm of my practice and then when everything went online there's like unlimited possibilities but also you could just drop in and out at any time. So finding that rhythm for practice for myself was, yeah, something that I kind of have been working on as well. And just to cycle back to what you were saying about how you feel like demonstrating everything is maybe not as not as good as being able to convey everything with words, I'm like, I kind of feel like, Well, you touched on this in your statement, how like there's people who are visual learners. And I think that it also helps to set up a non-hierarchical culture in the class that we're all moving together. Like it's not me telling you what's right for your body. Like I'm moving with you as the teacher. So I'm all for the demoing. Like I think it can be really helpful and really powerful, especially if you don't have that 
energetic sense of what's going on with the people in the room the way that you do in person online. I feel like if there's anything you can do to make things more clear for more people, then that's useful. Right. Yes. That is good to hear. Thank you for affirming me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I I demo everything online. (laughs) And also if you're not demoing it, like you're just sitting there staring at a screen. Exactly. It's awkward. And I noticed that like I've, I've been trying to recently kind of be like okay and now find your downward dog and then I'll come and kind of kneel on my knees and look at the screen and then people look at the screen and see me kneeling and then come to kneeling I'm like no (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) do you have any strategies that you bring into your teaching to kind of help that community spirit alive when everyone is in their own individual little lounge rooms yeah I think I I talk pretty literally, I guess, to my students about the fact that we're gathering from all over, especially in like the first or second week of the super lockdown in Melbourne. I had lots of people from Melbourne come and join my classes and I know that quite a few of them lived alone. And so I I understood at least some of the reasons why they were coming to this class and practicing with their camera on and turning up early and stuff so just yeah sometimes I think when I'm when people are coming together before we begin to practice I just kind of remind people like I can see everyone kind of running around on their screen setting their space up and and wherever you've been in the last half hour is so different to each other that now as we begin to settle into our space and and begin to breathe together us queer people or us Black, Indigenous, people of colour, all doing the exact same thing right now in our space, sometimes all over the world or at least all over the country, and that's what unites us. So, like, people, are, uh, they might be breathing totally differently or sitting in different shapes, but their intention of drawing awareness to their breath, for example, is something that makes them relate to the next person on the screen next to them and the next and the next And lots of these people don't know each other and would never meet in ordinary circumstances. But I feel like just drawing literal attention to this fact that there's some people who practice at 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon and there's some people who come to the same practice and it's 7.30 a.m. they're on the other side of the world. Whatever context they're in, we're all coming together with the same intention and then you spend an hour together working to that intention and then finishing in stillness in maybe some similar state of stillness. So I really like to draw attention to that because I'm still, though I run these classes every week, I'm still bewildered that this happens. Like it's, it's a miracle, I feel like, being able to gather these people who miss their community, some who are used to being in community and some who have never had this community before, you know. Yeah, it's a pretty awesome silver lining to all of this. Like as much as we're kind of separated from people in a physical sense, there are all these other emerging ways to connect that are happening online. Mm, Yeah, totally. Hello, Ran here to talk about our Patreon page. Patreon is just a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as $1 US a month. High tiers get access to extra special content as well as a listing on our website and a shout out on the podcast. If you'd like to help us with a small monthly donation, just go to patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast and join in the fun. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can share this episode on social media, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just reach out and let us know your thoughts on this or anything else. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Daisy. And so have you kind of made choices with the language that you use to help everyone feel welcome and included, or is it not really as much of a choice? It's just like, this is who you are and this is how you speak. Yeah, I think part of it is how I speak. My Lots of my old friends who've known me for years like the way that they receive my classes, they're like so much of your flavor is in there. It's just kind of the language that I wouldn't use normally day to day because that's my instructional language. But yeah, I've been pleased to hear from friends that it it's still my personality in there. But I guess in my facilitation, I just try to use as many open and broad invitations as I can whilst also harnessing the kind of power or leadership of holding space so that I think my instructions are 
pretty affirmative and like directional, but I always kind of lead it in a way where it comes back to you, your agency and your autonomy. It's definitely a balance with invitational language of being clear. So people don't just get bamboozled with all of these options and with that like clarity is always that sense of like what's actually going to work for you in this moment. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that I really loved about your practice is your beautiful and heartfelt acknowledgement of country at the beginning of the class and how it just beautifully flowed into your opening meditation And I could tell that it like just totally came from your heart and from your soul. Would you like to tell us about what this practice means to you? Mm, Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I'm used to acknowledging land when I'm in a group of people. That's kind of the, the normal thing I hope that you do. And no matter whether you're there to meet and make decisions or you're there to move through your body and connect with your breath or whatever it's like if you're gathering gathering a group of people to unite in some way then it feels supernatural to acknowledge the land that you're on yeah it's incredibly important to me to thread in my yoga practice my teaching practice and my personal practice this intention of decolonizing decolonizing the practice of yoga as it's been colonized but also decolonizing i guess my position as a leader as a teacher and as someone who benefits off being a settler in so-called Australia and have my whole life and it's more relevant to me I guess because I'm an Indigenous person myself and I live here settled on Gadigal land on the Eora Nation but I am from a land in Aotearoa and my family is Indigenous to this place in Aotearoa in the North Island kind of closer to the west coast called Waikato and Waitomo and so in that respect I'm still discovering how I can connect to land how I can spiritually connect to land and also what my relationship is to this land as an uninvited guest but as someone who is Indigenous to another colonised place and this the in the context of my teaching practice Again, I, I want to show my gratitude and my connection to the things that support me in my practice and that's my breath, my teachers, the land that we're on. You know, I talk a little bit about how in yoga the lots of the practices, the asanas, mantra, so much of the yogic practice is about acknowledging and paying respects to sages and gods and all these figures who've inspired so many of these teachings. So it only feels natural to me to pay respects and thanks to the land that we're practicing this colonized practice on, especially right now where hopefully these ideas of First Nation sovereignty are becoming more at the forefront of people's awareness. But yeah, I guess you the beginning of a yoga practice, you're invited to connect to your breath and connect to yourself and connect to your place and and bring some awareness to your surroundings. So in doing that, you will also connect with this idea that if you're practicing here in Australia, the land you're practicing on is colonized and the people who are most connected to the land are still fighting while you're here finding truth through a practice on the land. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like you express that in much fewer words as you're leading the practice, but all of that richness is there. And I know as a teacher online myself, like just as everyone's setting up their rooms and maybe a bit flustered and sometimes there's tech issues and sometimes you don't know if everyone who's booked in is going to arrive, like, you just make me really want to really have that quiet time and that connecting to country and connecting to breath and really prioritise that above the logistics and the technical side of leading a class online because I think there's that difference in when you're walking to a studio or, I mean, our studio is in our backyard, but when when you're physically coming to a place, part of that is getting into that mindset 
But when it's in your lounge room, I think it is really powerful to just have that another layer of intention to really settle in and to really acknowledge like what's important and what these practices are all about. Mm, So true, especially, yeah, in these online classes when you're practicing in a room that you have a totally different context for, like you might have just turned around from your day of work and you've got that context for that room, but then to kind of go deeper, sometimes in my acknowledgements I say go deeper than the floorboards and the soil beneath it and kind of understand this wisdom that is existent in the earth that's right underneath you every day. Yeah, so powerful. And it sounds like this is super natural for you as an Indigenous person yourself to really be creative with your acknowledgement of country or just speak from your heart. And I know for a lot of other yoga teachers from different backgrounds, like people are worried about getting it wrong. And so maybe people will just read something that they've read other places or just try and I think sometimes there's a little bit of anxiety around it because people's heart might be in the right place, but it might be a little bit more new to them or it might be just something that they haven't grown up with and hasn't always been a part of the practices that they've gone to. Do you have any thoughts around that for maybe people who haven't been doing this in their classes or people who have been doing it but have been feeling like, am I doing this right? Yeah, for sure. I think you can only feel like you're doing something wrong if you're trying to do it by the formula. Like you don't have to be Indigenous to speak this from your heart. I I encourage people to really ask themselves why you want to acknowledge country. And if it's because you should, then there's some digging to be done. It's like you, why, why is it important to you to tell your students, hey, did you know we're on Aboriginal land right now? Here's what it means to me. And so it's not not only a prompting to encourage your students to acknowledge the land that they're on, but it's in a way it's kind of a sharing of, hey, this is what it means to me. And that can totally be scary. Sometimes it's scary for me, but this is some of the the discomfort and the unpacking that we're being encouraged to do right now. It's stepping away from the formulas because really I'd rather not hear an acknowledgement of country than hear a, one that you hear that is written down the two lines that's recommended because then what is like what if I go and ask you after your class hey can you elaborate on that acknowledgement of country I want to know more and then the person can't answer I I would hope that it that acknowledging country comes from a place of solidarity and respect and a commitment to learning more and even if that is your acknowledgement like how powerful to make a public announcement about your commitment to learning more about the land that you benefit off if you're a settler you know and how in tune of what a yoga practice is all about like it's all about learning exactly and having the humility to be like I don't know it all and maybe I don't even need to know it all but I'm committed to understanding how I can learn more And I notice on your website as well that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students can always practice for free in your classes and that you also offer a sliding scale to all of your classes. And I'd really love to kind of get into some of those aspects of feel-free yoga. Has this always been your approach or is this also something that's evolved over time? You've, You've felt your way into what's going to be sustainable for me as a teacher but also share these offerings of mine with with the people who I really want to be able to benefit from these practices and money not be an issue. Mm. Yeah, when I was doing in-person classes, it wasn't sliding scale because logistically I hadn't figured out a way to to make that process smooth because I'm totally happy for people to choose their price and it doesn't go through any process of me approving it or, or denying it. So when people were paying face-to-face, then, yeah, I just hadn't figured out a a way that that could have been smooth and fine. But it has been my approach since I have been teaching online and it's been really interesting and super empowering. I really love the sliding scale model. I think it, over the past months for me and I think my students too, it kind of encourages you to interrogate what it is that you value about yoga or more specifically, 
encourages you to interrogate what you've been taught to value about yoga. Lots of times in my face-to-face classes, I noticed that when I was creating my sequencing, I felt this huge pressure to make sequences interesting and new every single week, even though the class was open to beginners. And I noticed that it was because I felt this pressure to give people a workout or to allow them the chance to challenge themselves physically. Otherwise, they might not have felt like the class was valuable. And I, it's interesting because I never really like approach yoga my own practice that way, but I felt this perceived sense of like accountability to people's fitness regimes or something was strange. But yeah, as I've delved deeper into understanding the sliding scale model, I think people are starting to realize or already do realize that they come to yoga for many different things. These online classes Yes, their physical body may be challenged with some of the asana practice, but they also get this chance to connect with me, to connect with other people in their community. They get taught new pranayama or or have space held for them to meditate or just to be able to keep to a routine if their routine might have been totally in shambles. So I think it's actually been a really interesting way for beginner students at least to understand how many different things are valuable in yoga and and I would really say we sliding scale I think maybe like the capitalism punches into us that we if we give people the chance to pay less then they definitely will but in my experience it's really not the case and people who know they can pay the higher end of the sliding scale which in my case is $15 they will pay that if they can and if they want to And then the people who can pay closer to the $5 scale, they just do and it's done and it's fine. And there's lots of other other things that kind of come into that. Like quite early on, one of my students asked if they could donate a pay it forward spot. And I hadn't had a system or anything set up for that. But just this idea that this person didn't lose work in COVID, they still had the same income and they found the benefit of my classes to impact them so much that they wanted to be able to donate a class to somebody else who had lost work or who just has less money or income than them. So yeah, there's been lots of really amazing, heartwarming and kind of mind bending things that I've learned from having a sliding scale. And I I think for the future, I just intend to keep it that way. Something else that I really stood out to me about how you do the pricing and the payment for your classes is you send people out the link after the class and there's a bit of trust there. And I think it kind of comes into that capitalist mindset as well. That's like, no, you've got to make people pay up front because otherwise they're just going to not pay. And obviously this hasn't been your experience. And I think as well, there's something like at the end of the class when people are really feeling the benefit of the practice and that connection to other people in the community. I actually wonder if people would end up contributing more anyway, because they're like, oh yeah, that was awesome. Like I really want to support her and I really want to support this community. Yeah. You get them post-shavasana when they're feeling yeah. really <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That definitely the paying after and before yeah, it doesn't, it, it works so fine for me now having people pay after. When I was doing my face-to-face classes, I used like I created kind of my own booking system, but people would still pay after. But this meant that the challenge of having to get to the studio when you might have booked your space five days before and then you all of a sudden can't show up and you haven't paid money. So you're like, nah, I'm not going to go. Everyone does it. But that was annoying for me in my just from my perspective as a yoga teacher running classes. But, yeah, the online way works fine for me. And so just out of interest, how much time do you spend outside of the time that you're teaching that you do managing all of the emailing and all of the like setting up your links in your link tree and all of the other stuff around teaching yoga online that's not the class? Mm. Yeah, because I have my classes are sort of peppered throughout the week. I have the queer and trans and the BIPOC classes on Sunday nights and then an open class on Monday mornings and another open class on Wednesday nights. It's kind of all throughout the week. And in the beginning when I was getting all my forms and everything, I don't have, I don't use any platforms or booking systems or anything. I 
kind of DIY'd the whole thing. In the beginning, it would take a long time to set everything up and change the dates on everything. It's so much admin. But now I've kind of got it down to a fine art. I just finish my Monday morning class, 8.30, and then have a coffee. And as soon as my coffee is done, I am there. I'm sure it takes me probably an hour all up to do all of my forms and admin and all that kind of stuff each week now. That's so good. Yeah, but I require a coffee beforehand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I mean, it's just going to cut down on mistakes. Yeah. (laughs) Having that coffee first. (laughs) And so I think I already know the answer to this, but do you see yourself continuing to offer your online classes when in person's an option again? Yeah, for sure. Because it's, yeah, we, we all know the the benefits of being able to practice online, but I really feel like there's been such a community that has formed from these online classes that I couldn't imagine not holding that space anymore for these people who gather from all over. I definitely will bring back my in-person classes at some point, but yeah, right now, while it's still here in Sydney, it's kind of an iffy time for in-person things yoga studios are open but I think there's a a capacity limit and I'm just not really willing to risk it at this point so yeah the online classes they keep going until further notice (laughs) and so were you hiring a space when you were teaching in person or were you at a studio yeah I was subletting a space privately subletting a a yoga studio and it's an Iyengar studio actually just here in Marrickville but because I teach vinyasa I subletted it privately for my own community so I had to do all the bringing people in and marketing and all that kind of business rather than go on the teaching role and then just before things started to quieten down here and stuff started shutting down in March I taught one class at uh, studio in Ashfield as part of their teaching role but three days later my class has been online and has been ever since. And I guess since you had that set up already like it's you have the freedom to decide what you want to do from here you don't have a responsibility to a studio if you're just subletting that space you don't have to go along with whatever their policy is you can just totally do what feels right for you. Exactly. And so I've noticed that you're pretty active on your Instagram. Is social media and just online sharing in general like something that comes really easily to you or is it a little bit of the yoga teaching grind where you're like, okay, I've got to get online and talk about my class Mm. so people know what's happening this week? Mm. Yeah, I've been thinking about this recently actually, like why so much of the things that I've done have existed online. Like and I've been wondering why like some people my age don't feel this affinity to being online and some it feels so naturally that they can't even distinguish not being online but I think that when I moved to Yass I was obviously super connected to my friends on the Gold Coast when I left and I was like 13 and then I had all these alternative interests I was like into alternative music and had Gold Coast-like interests as well. And then I moved to Yas, this small town where I was just received really strangely by teenagers who had never met someone from the Gold Coast before and they thought that the Gold Coast was like a kind of big, incredible, scary city compared to what they were used to. And so I felt really isolated in Yas pretty much the whole time that I lived there. But I did have access to the internet there and that's how I stayed in contact with lots of friends from the Gold Coast but also how I made new friends sort of in Canberra which was like 45 minutes away. So I think that it actually stemmed from trying to survive, like trying to maintain friendships and connection when I was in a place feeling really isolated. And then if I look at other friendships that I've made online or connections that I've made online, it has been from this this thirst for connection and community, like so much community for me in my experience has happened online and then has been brought to life when when the situation arises. Yeah, like I can totally tell how that teenage experience of isolation has just flowed into, it seems like community is really at the heart of what you do now. Mm, yeah, totally. And so have you got any other projects on the go that you'd like to share about? Yeah, I'm I'm in the process of making 
kind of a package of pre-recorded yoga practices. Lots of people have been excited to join my class but aren't able to make it at the time or whatever it is. And I know pre-recorded practices can be just more doable for people. So I'm in the process of doing that. But working with video cameras is so boring to me and so not natural to me. So it's taking a sec, but I do intend to release some of those probably five practice packages in September. And are you kind of going DIY with how you're building it and sharing it as well? Yeah, yeah. And it'll be released sliding scale as well and free to mob. Yeah, nice. Beautiful. Well, I guess we've uh, just got one more question, which we ask at the end of all of our episodes. So if you could distill everything you teach and everything that you've learned down to one core lesson, what do you think that one thing would be? Right now, what's at the front of my mind is to aim for acceptance first and then love comes later. And is this within yourself or from others or it's all just both sides of the same coin? Everything really. I think it definitely starts with the self and and body, but any new lessons or things that are hard, like I'm really learning to accept and welcome challenges because then if I look back on my life and reflect on the challenges and the hard stuff that I've gone through, I definitely didn't welcome it. But I've grown from them and I definitely wouldn't be where I am today without having gone through them and learnt the lessons from them. So yoga helps me to just be in touch with acceptance and then with love. But I feel like where these messages are distilled so much to being like, love yourself, but that can seem so hard when you hate yourself or when you don't know anyone like you. So I've learnt to kind of pare it back a little bit and let's just make contact with acceptance first. And then once you can be comfortable with acceptance, then love might come a little later. Yeah, so powerful. Let's not set this up as another thing you can fail at in your life. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, so great to talk to you. And thank you so much for everything that you share. I'm sure that you are a lifeline for a lot of people in lockdown and isolated geographically right now so yeah thank you so much thanks so much for having me thanks for your podcast love it oh yay (laughs) i hope you enjoyed our conversation with daisy i personally learned a lot particularly about making your acknowledgement of country as meaningful as you can sometimes i do feel like it's just making lip service and i agree with her that you should really try to figure out what that connection to the land and the people that live there means for you all right so for our next episode we're speaking with marley silver marley was the host of the podcast titus for titus and always was always will be our stories and has written the book my titter my sister stories from australia's first woman she's only in her 20s and she has done so much it was super inspiring to get the chance to speak with her look out for that episode in two weeks time Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love. Love.